There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show, I'm sharing the full story of how I killed my target buck in 2022 and the tactics that helped me kill this deer during the late season on a small property. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And uh, today I'm here with my buddy and partner in crime, Mr. Tony Peterson, for one of my favorite kind of podcast episodes. Uh, this is this is Tony, the kind of episode we call the showboat and gloat episode. <laughs> <laughs> Or I get to talk I about that success. Was every episode you did, Mark. No, man. Have you ever listened to me do a podcast? Ninety nine percent of my stories are I missed, I screwed it up, I did this thing, I did that thing. So these are few and far between. I got to milk them when I get it, Tony. <laughs> well, we're gonna make you look like a freaking hero, buddy. That's that's what I'm going for today. We've got a good story, folks. We got a we've got a success story. Um, I'm gonna tell you the story of how I killed my 2022 number one target buck it's a three-year story um i haven't talked you know specifics about it as much over the last couple years at least about the specific buck i've kind of vaguely mentioned my number one target buck here and there um but i've been kind of saving the details until hopefully you know we'd have this kind of story where i could break it all down so that's that's the plan i want to walk you guys through year by year um you know my encounters with this deer how i tried to hunt him how it all came together here recently. And and this is kind of not just a story podcast, but I'm hoping it can be kind of two things on top of that. It can be a how to deer hunt small properties podcast, and it can be a how to kill a deer during the post rut or late season 
podcast because I, there's some tactics on both sides there that I think we can unpack and explore a little bit. Um, so Tony, my hope for you, my friend is to kind of, you know, guide me along or press me on certain questions or certain things so we can make this as valuable as possible to people, not just me like rambling, but actually help some folks. So, uh, that's, that's your role. (laughs) All right, buddy, let's go nuts. So this is the buck I call junior and why I, I call this dear junior because three years ago. I was hunting a different buck in this general area and I would, this buck I call Tran and every once in a while I'd see a deer with really tall G2s and a tight, tall rack moving through the woods and be like, Oh, that's him. And then I pull up my binos and all of a sudden I realize, Oh no, it's, it's not, it's a, his mini me. It's this other buck that looks similar frame wise, you know, at first glance from a long ways away. And then you quickly realize, Oh no, it's a younger buck. So I just started referring to this buck as junior because he was kind of like train junior. Um, and so that, you know, it's a practical thing for me when I hunt these different small properties here in Michigan, especially that I've hunted for years. I see many of the same bucks year after year. And it's just easier for me to throw a tag on them. So I, when I say tag, I mean a name so that I, you know, can talk about them to my friends, to you, to folks and have it all make sense. So this buck, I started calling junior in 2020. And I guessed him to be probably a three-year-old, you know, based on how I see these deer grow year after year. He looked like that third class of deer. Uh-huh. Um, what, what do you think he scored then? Uh, not much, like 110 maybe, something yeah. like that. Which um, it, we should talk about for a second, though, because that's a really common sort of antler class to be at three years old. Yeah. Like we, we talk about this, you know, oh, Midwestern bucks, they're 140s at three and a half. And there's more of them that are 110 than 140. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 that's, I would say like 70% of the three-year-olds that I hunt in Michigan, at least, or that I see in Michigan are in that ballpark, like 110, 115, 120, you know, like a 120 is usually like a good three-year-old around here. Um, I've, I've bumped into a handful of like genetic freaks, like that I would say, Oh, like that's a three-year-old in Iowa kind of buck, but those have been very, very rare. Um, so this is a deer that, you know, that year when I saw him, he was in that, like, you know, if you're looking at like the herd or like the, the pool of bucks in your area, you know, on, on most of these different Michigan spots I hunt, you know, in a good year nowadays, there'll be like one buck that's four or five. Um, and then there'll be like a couple three-year-olds and then a bunch of year and a half and two and a half year olds. And so in 2020, he was like in that second rank down. There was like the one buck that was, I, th- I think Tran would have been five and a half that year. And then there was this buck and one other three-year-old that year. So this was like in that kind of category of, okay, I'm going to keep tabs on you now. Like I've noticed you, I see you around, you're recognizable. Now I'm going to start paying attention a little bit. So, you know, I saved all the pictures. I got them over the course of the season Saw him a lot, had some cool, like close encounters with him um, that are just fun when you know it's a deer that like, okay, this is a deer that next year, you know, as a four-year-old, I, I, I'll probably be chasing him. So I, I really like to, I really milk those encounters. Like I just get jacked when I see an up-and-comer buck that I'm hoping someday I'll be hunting. Um, so I had him a couple times within range, you know, took note of where those spots were, when he was doing it, um, all, you know, looking forward to the future. Um, uh, Hey, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. So when you, when you talk about that and say, 
you know, I, I see this buck and it, you're maybe in a little bit different position there than some of the people listening. Cause you, you're thinking there's a good chance this deer could be here next year. So you're looking at this deer and what he's doing. And you're like, I'm paying attention to this. Cause this, if this dude doesn't get whacked, I'm going to be hunting him next year. And what he tells me today, I can use next season. Yes. And I think people look at that and go, well, okay. If you have a spot where you're going to be able to pass them up and they're going to come back, but those sightings of deer that age class or two and a half year olds, or even, even, you know, scrappers and does when you, when you get the chance to really observe them, especially individual deer doing things, it's like such a lesson on what all deer might do. That's, that's a really key point because even, even if he got killed that next year, I still think I could learn things from what he was doing that could apply to the next three and a half or four and a half year old buck that shows up in that area, you know? Yep. Um, so I, I do, and this is something like we've talked about for years, but I'm always trying to ask why, like if I see a nice buck doing something, I always am trying to think, okay, why did he do that? Why did he go from point A to point B? Why did he follow this edge or this low spot or that divot? Um, so every one of those encounters or observations is going into the memory bank and, and I'm trying to use that to build up this, you know, this, this pool of information that someday I might pull from. Um, and so that, that year, 2020, you know, I was, I was hunting this one buck, but this deer and one other were two, like I really paid close attention to like every time I saw them, I tried to like get my cell phone out and film them just so I could remember where they were and what they're doing. I took pictures. I, you know, started studying their camera pictures, even at the end of that season, knowing like, all right, man, next year I'm going to be after junior and rookie is what I was hoping for. And, um, you know, I've got a few of these little Michigan spots that I, I think one thing to what you just brought up is this idea, like, well, you know, the only way you can hunt the same buck year after year is if you've got some huge mega property. Um, that's not the case. Like I've got several small properties I hunt here in Michigan that are small. I mean, where I hunted this buck junior, this was like 35 to 40 acres. This is not big. Like every single picture and encounter and observation I have with this deer was within like about a 30 acre area. That's it. Um, and I think it's, not always going to be like there's going to be some 30 acre properties that can have a deer like this, make it. And there's going to be some 30 acre properties that can't um, because, you know, maybe there's more pressure or there's not a safe place. Like in this area, this buck found a hole. There's like two really good little sanctuary safe spots in this area that bucks can get to and survive. There's a swamp that this guy lived in. There's another really cool brushy, nasty kind of, bedding zone that just seems to suck in bucks when the pressure hits up hard. And so I've learned like over the years, like on this particular piece where this buck was, there's like a 50, 50 chance. Like if I see a good three-year-old or if there's a four-year-old, if there's like a nice buck, there's like a 50% chance he might make it to the next year. If I don't shoot him, I'd say give or take, that's about what I've found. Um, so I, uh, so because of that, I've gotten to the point where now I I'm, I'm pretty comfortable passing, you know, nice three and a half year old bucks that, you know, eight, nine years ago, those were deer I would shoot. Um, but now I, I know there's a chance there's 0% chance. If I shoot them, um, if I don't shoot them, uh, there's, there's a chance. And, and I really enjoy, you know, I've, I've, I've done a whole lot of different kinds of deer hunting, done a lot of the public land, wild Western adventure kind of stuff. I've, I've hunted some big properties by permission. I've hunted small properties by permission. I've done leases, uh, my family has a 40 acre farm up in, or property up in Northern Michigan. That's private that we own. I've hunted that. I've kind of got to dip my toes in the water and a bunch of things. Um, you know, last season with deer country, I hunted like wildly different things all over. 
And I still think like my very favorite is just like hunting a spot where you get to see these deer year after year and just like studying them, learning them. Like, you know me, I'm an analytical dude. I just love like studying these critters. Like I think deer are fascinating. I love studying them, thinking about what they might do, why they might do it, predicting, okay, well they did this that year or they did this last week. What might they do next week or tomorrow? Um, I love just seeing them. I love observing deer. Like one of my favorite things about this area is just like getting out and glassing. I glass a ton. Um, cause I just love watching deer and it's, it's cool that there's spots I can glass and watch deer, but then also help my future hunts. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the foundation of this, this hunt story, I guess, is, is that kind of context. Well, and I, and I think there's something worth touching on there. Cause you know, I went from in, in kind of my deer hunting career, I have, I started out with some big properties like permission-based properties and, you know, living in the suburbs here, my opportunities have just shrunk. Like I, you know, I went from maybe having permission on a farm that's, you know, 300 acres or 500 acres to 20, 30 acre properties like you're talking about. And one of the things that I've learned is when I went into those small properties, I felt like it was just a roll of the dice. Like maybe they'll come through, maybe they won't. But it never felt like you have like I, I never felt right away like I had deer to work. Like I was like, okay, this is the guy who lives here or that buck or whatever. And as I've hunted these more and more and and really run cameras on them and tried to be super careful, you realize that like, yeah, you're at a disadvantage if you only have 30 acres and somebody else has a thousand, but you can make a lot happen out of just a 30 acre property if you figure it out. Yeah. Like there, there's there's a lot going on there. Even if that's one twentieth or one twenty fifth of a deer's, you know, overall home range. Like, man, if you figure out what they like to do and when they like to do it, and you can be real kind of surgical about when you go in, you, you can make a lot happen out of not much acreage. Yeah, it really it's so true. Like, surgical is the right word. You have to be surgical on the small pieces, and you also have to get lucky. Like you said, I mean, sometimes you've got a thirty acre piece where they're at, and sometimes it's the thirty acre piece that they just aren't at. Um, I mean like my Ohio story is a perfect example because I have a 30 acre piece in Ohio that, um, you know, I had really high hopes for this year and I've hunted it now like eight days, almost all day, eight days. And I've seen a spike in a doe over the course of that entire period. And, um, you know, a few camera pictures of good bucks, but like very, very, very little activity compared to what I expected there to be. And you're sitting out there hunting. And you're like, well, I have no other options. Like, I don't have, I can't go yep. check out this other draw. I can't go to that other point. I can't go explore some other bedding area. Like, I've got one corridor and one bedding area, and that's it. So, you know, you can, you win some, you lose some on small properties. So, in the best case scenario, you've got a bunch of places like that. Um, if you can manage it or have some public that you can fill in your time with or whatever. Um, you know, I'm fortunate with, with the particular place where this buck is that it's, you know, there's a small property, but it hunts kind of nicely because the way it lays out, I kind of have access to two different bedding areas. And historically, there's been a decent buck that lives in each one of those kind of cores. Um, and so at least that's, that's, I've kind of figured that out over the years. And um, yep. as long as I'm like really careful about when I ever go in there after a deer in the, one of those two regions, they, they feel safe there as long as I'm not messing it up and, um, yeah. or I get unlucky and someone else shoots something and goes in there, or whatever. So that's, that's why this spot has, has been productive. And that's why this deer lived there. It's, um, you know, 2020 
he as a three year old he he roamed a lot a lot. I saw him quite a few times in daylight when I was hunting for that other buck. Um, like I mentioned, I had some close calls with him, kept tabs, and I can't tell you that that year I, I noticed like a really big obvious pattern as far as what he did other than the fact that he was a homebody like he lived on this property or right next to it and he was he was kind of everywhere the next year 2021 last year he and one other deer that i called rookie that year were the bucks that i thought i was going to be after i saw them when i went out doing some scouting i think in january so i knew they both made it through the season was really excited about that um and, you know, said high hopes to see what they might turn into in 2021. I got pictures of both of them. I did a lot of summer glassing. I never saw either one of them when glassing, but I did get pictures of both of them in late August. And to the kind of thing I mentioned earlier about like how maybe 50% of them make it through, 50 don't, um, you know, partway through that season, rookie disappeared. He was wiped off the face of the earth. He got killed by someone or something. And he was out. So so Junior became the only deer I was after last year. Um, but he was tough to, to figure out because Rookie was around all of October and he was he was more visible. I, I saw him a couple times. I got pictures of him here and there. Um, Junior was kind of a ghost. I was I was struggling to see him. He was not as move he was not as visible as he had been the year before, which you know from three to four, that's to be expected. Um, but he really took it to another level, I figured. Um, and I was kind of confused. I wasn't sure what was going on. I was hunting near these bedding areas that usually like as we moved into October, you usually get to late October. And if there's bucks that are getting ready to check out those hot does, they're going to check a couple of these spots. Um, and it, nothing wasn't getting, wasn't getting a whole lot until I started checking some cameras. I had some like standard cell not cell cameras, standard trail cameras that had been back in the back of the property that I hadn't gone to at all um, because I'd been seeing and getting some intel on rookie sort of towards the front of this area, the like bedding area A. So I've been hunting a couple times up there in the early season, kind of mid to late October. If I'm remembering right, I had a gap between my travel. So as you know, last year I was traveling all over, all over for deer country. So I had one window where I could hunt this uh, Michigan stuff in late October before more travel. So I remember going back like October 23rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, something somewhere in that window. And for the first time, I decided to slip into the back of this, this farm and check some cameras there. And that kind of opened my eyes to what was going on. There was two different cameras back there and Junior was on them a bunch. And I realized like, okay, he has shifted his, you know, behavior from being like an all over this property to a just bedding area B kind of deer. So it kind of seemed like rookie had taken ownership as a four year old of this one bedding area in the front core area and the stuff that surrounded that. And now it seemed like junior was taking up shop in the bottom spot around this big swamp. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm saying, okay, well, here he is. He was, he was here in daylight at the end of September. He was here in daylight the first week of October. Um, he was here in daylight two days ago, October 22nd, uh, something like that. And now I think, okay, I'm, I'm in the game. This deer's still around. He's huntable, and he's he's in this little corner. So I had like a five-day window before I had to leave for one week in November and tossed some hunts at it. And I, I want to kind of speak to the overall hunt strategy for this property, like generically, before I really knew what Junior was doing. Um, 
I, I do not hunt this area very often at all because of the whole small, small property thing. And there is a lot of hunting pressure in the area, but it's, you know, I've, I've got this little sanctuary, these two little bedding areas that act as sanctuaries that I have access to. There's a neighboring property that's about 80 acres that doesn't allow hunting. At least I don't think they do. Um, and so like those things act as like a small sanctuary surrounded by lots and lots of pressure around me. But I've always thought, you know, I can very, like, that's a benefit for me, but I could very quickly erase that benefit if I'm not careful. So, so surgical is the right way to describe what I try to do. I try to, you know, only hunt this spot or these spots when I've got, you know, a good wind, when I've got a good access or exit opportunity. I don't hunt more. And these are things I know that you will think you hate, but like, I don't hunt mornings in October out there because it's really hard to get into and out of because there's, there's big open fields close to the road. I just can't get in without having to cross some kind of open field. So I don't hunt those mornings. Well, but let's talk about that for a second though, because you know, from my perspective, I'm what you're doing is the right move on a property like that. Like if you, if you have the chance to save it, you know, somebody else isn't going to go in there. You're not doing yourself any favors by being the one who puts stupid pressure on them. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a difference, right? Cause I, I, I look at most of my stuff and I go, I just got to be the first one in there. Like if that's October 10th or whatever, and it's a morning because that's fleeting because I don't know who's going to mess it up. If you have a chance to save it and pay real close attention to your access and like, and, and go in when the, like all of the odds are in your favor, as far as they can be, that's the move. Yeah. You know, and, I mean, it's just so situational. Yeah, that's that's the key. Is it's it's circumstance specific, and and so yep. in this place, like I know, like it can hold deer, it can hold a good buck or two, as long as you don't blow it. But like you can blow it very quickly. And you know, one thing I've learned over the years, something I've changed the last few years, is I've I've taken that even further when it comes to like my evening exits. So I won't even hunt this property now if the if the crops are cut. I won't hunt this property unless I have somebody who can drive out and clear the fields for me. So if, if my wife's available or some other friend or family member, I can call in a favor on, um, if, if no one's available to do that and if the crops are down and deer are feeding in it, I just won't hunt. I just won't do those evening hunts in a spot that I'm going to have to blow out the field. Cause I know it just won't work. I'd rather, I'd rather miss a good condition day and not blow out the field and then hunt you know, two days later when I do have that exit strategy. Cause like that exit strategy has been like the game changer for this, this little section here. If I can get someone to drive out on a, you know, drive the truck out through the field or drive a side by side or an ATV or whatever's available. Um, that gets me away with murder as far as like being able to hunt in these places, you know, several times without deer catching on to my exit in the evenings. Um, so that, that's been a, that's been a big one for me. I've, I've been able to get away a lot more because a lot of this property is, is field. Like it's a lot of field edge. There's some small, small timber fingers and there's one big chunk. There's the swamp, but that's like this bedding Mecca that I pretty much never go into that. That's like a sanctuary. So my huntable stuff is all edge and some finger and some grassy stuff. So it's, it's, it's tough from an access perspective. If you don't have someone who can help you out in that kind of way this year, I did get a e-bike, and I've used that a couple times when I couldn't get a ride. And I think that still got me away with a little bit more. Um, but man, a human being walking out across a cut field or even walking down a two track that's back in the timber a little bit from the field 
you know, walking around exiting in the evening is just going to do quick damage to a tiny place like this. And I, I was burned by that a whole lot of years in the early years when I was hunting this area and around there. And I feel like, you know, being again, more surgical and sacrificing some days. So I might not get as much quantity, but I'm getting more quality because of that. And, um, you know, you know what I think about that? Like, I honestly think that, you know, I'll use an example here. Everybody likes to think everybody else is super greedy. You know what I mean? It's like really easy to <laughs> overlook your own greed and be like, yeah. oh, those billionaires, they should pay more taxes. They should donate more money. But we never think like, oh, are you like, are you paying extra taxes? Are you donating a ton of money to charity? Like, it's really easy to sort of look past your own greed and you know, like we're yeah. real biased toward ourselves. Right. For sure. And we talk constantly about hunting pressure. Like, I mean, it's it's. To me, like that's the number one enemy to your success always. Yes. I don't think we, I don't think most hunters give their own hunting pressure enough credit for putting deer down. Yeah. Like, I think we know when we burn a spot, we know when we're kind of being lazy, but I don't think we understand, you know, cause we're always like, oh, it's the other people, it's the other hunters. And yeah, like that happens, you know, you hunt public land or whatever. Sure. But the amount of pressure we put on them and how quickly, you know, if you're in a state with a lot of hunters, how quickly those deer react to that is incredible. And I just, I think like it's so easy to not give your own presence enough credit for putting them down, but it's so important to pay attention to that. Yeah. And, and, you know, be honest with yourself about it. Like being willing to look in the mirror and confront the ugly thing in the face and be like, okay, yeah, you know, that was, that's probably me. This is probably something I caused. It's like you said, it's, it's much easier to pass the blame off on the neighbor or bad luck or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I was to blame for many years of disappearing bucks probably in this area because I was wanting to hunt a lot. And yep. I just learned like I can hunt a lot, but I can't hunt this place a lot. I've got to hunt other places. Um, I've got to keep this, you know, relatively careful, real light. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so I was kind of forced to hunt this property late or light last year because of my travel. Um, so I had like a few swings. I took a few hunts in that early, early October window. I think I hunted the first three days. And, um, you know, like I said, I saw that buck rookie I was after. Um, and then I came back in late October and I think I had like four or five days or something, three, four days, something like that. And that was going to be like the extent of my rut hunting because I was gone for two weeks traveling November, October 31st through November 14th. So I knew like that basically this is my rut hunt is this last week of October. So I, I, you know, kind of went hard for that period cause that was my window. And I knew that, you know, Junior had been super active last year, of course, in late October. And when I checked those cameras, I realized, okay, he's in this back area by the swamp. He's like, refocus his attention here. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit it and see if I can't catch him slipping up a little bit. So it was standing corn at that point though, on the ag fields. So I could hunt kind of the edge of the standing corn in the swamp. And then the edge of the standing corn and this like finger of timber that, kind of extends out from that swamp and connects it to another block. And so I, I did a couple evening hunts like that. I think I did a couple morning hunts on the edge of that bedding area as well. Uh, but the moral of that story is like never saw him, never, you know, saw a whisker of him. And, uh, you know, he, he was just still ghosting other than a few of those daylight pictures. Like I said, like I got October 6th and then like 
the day or two before I showed up to hunt in late October, he was daylight, and that was that was it. Um, now I take off hunting across the country, yada yada yada, and I'm trying to remember when this happened. I th- I think it happened after my rutcation. I think I got back from rutcation, and like the corn was getting taken down like that day. I got back. And I had to leave again for another trip in like two days or something though. So I knew like I don't have much of a window here to hunt, but I can like try to learn something. So I always like to take advantage of harvest to to kind of make moves if I need to. And in this case, with the corn coming down, I thought, man, I can go move some cameras around and get some cameras now kind of around this place that I think Junior's living and kind of tighten that, that throw the net around that more focused since he didn't seem to be showing up at all on the other piece of this property. So as that combine's working, as the corn's coming down, I race out there and I got, I got some new cell cameras that I hadn't had cells. I got some cell cameras and put three of them, I think on the edge of this swamp and where the swamp and corn came together, three different spots that over the years I've seen bucks just always like to come in and out of these little, like little, there's an inside corner, like in the bend of the swamp is one spot and then there's a low spot across this little finger of field, and they they always leave the swamp in this low spot, and they kind of stay hidden down there. I think thermals drop into the low spot; they can smell anything, and so that's another place. There's always a good scrape. So I put these cameras on those scrapes on the edge of the swamp, bailed out of there, let them finish combining, and I took off for my next trip. I then get nothing for a while. I'm not getting any pictures of him. I remember at this point I'd checked another, I'd done another round of my trail camera checks of the regular cameras. Um, and most of these other cameras are all kind of placed in easy places that I can drive my ATV and check. I don't, I don't check any like interior trail cameras on this property in season. Um, unless like it's next to, or on the way from like a hunting location. Otherwise, like the only time I'll check a camera on this property is if I can drive to it. Um, or like I just described the combines are going around. So I checked cameras and nothing in November at all. I think I had like a November one or two picture of him, something, but, but he kind of disappeared. Now I've got these cell cameras out there, nothing from him, nothing from him through the rest of November. I leave it alone all through gun season. Um, you know, I'm gone for a week of that and then I'm home for a week, but again, I'm leaving it alone. Um, I don't like to put a lot of pressure on this property during that peak of gun season because there's so much pressure all around it. I'd, I'd rather the pressure be all around me and they kind of hang out uh, in this little zone that I have sole access to as a sanctuary. And then I can come back in there in the later part of the season and hopefully there's a buck or two still alive and they're not as pressured in that specific spot. So that's what I was going to do. But I had to go to Alabama for uh, one of these hunts I was on last year. So the first week of December... I'm hunting in Alabama. I now have these cell cameras that are, you know, sending me pictures. And I remember, you know, I I get like, I have them send like once a day. And so, you know, whatever the designated time is that day, I was going to get pictures. I remember I pulled it up. I'm like, all right, sweet. Check the cameras for the day. And bam, there he is. December 3rd in daylight, like 345 in the afternoon, right in the edge of that swamp, hitting a scrape. Junior was back for the first time in a month. Um, right there. And, um, so it was very exciting to see he was still alive, but also frustrating cause I couldn't hunt him. Um, and this is like the beginning of the Alabama trip, I think. And then like two days later, I get another picture of him, same spot daylight again. And then two days later, 
He's about 100 yards away at another spot, daylight again. And three days later, another, I think it was like a day later or something, he daylighted again. He daylighted four times between December 3rd and 10th. And and I'm not home for any of it. So, you know, that's, cell cameras are great if you live far away from your properties or whatever. But if you are far away from your property and you're getting this information and you're handcuffed and you have no way to uh, to get out and start hunting, it can be frustrating. Uh, but exciting as well. It can be a little so, rough. Yeah. So I was just, but, but even though, even though you can't get on him at that moment because you've got other stuff going on, it's just such valuable Intel. Oh yeah. Great, great Intel. And, um, you know, there's cell cameras are like a conversation. Like I, I'm constantly wrestling with cell cameras. I'm constantly thinking about like how much is too much, how much data, how much is, is too much technology. Like I have this internal debate with myself and, you know, cell camera use is a touchy topic, even like within my own mind, I'm trying to like figure out what's the way to use this tool in a way that helps me, but isn't too much. Um, so, you know, so one thing I do is I set, so they only get them, you know, on a significant delay. So like, I've always felt like it'd be really icky if I'm hunting or if I'm at the house or something. And then I get a picture like right now that says, Oh, that deer is an X spot. And then I could use that real time. That feels like icky for me personally. So I have, force myself not to do that by putting this 12 or 24 hour delay on the photos. That makes me feel a little better about it. Um, but even that, like I know some folks view that as, is too much technology or too much help. Um, so, so all that said, like as I'm, as I put those cell cameras out and I'm using them and I'm getting these pictures while I'm in Alabama, I'm even like wrestling with that. Like, man, this is pretty awesome. That can be, you know, a thousand miles away and get fresh Intel on what's happening here that, especially in a small property like this, like every time you go in there to check a standard camera, you are hurting your chances of seeing that deer in the future because like every step, you know, you place out there is making an impact. Um, which is why like now I, I, like I said, I, I do not walk out there to check cameras. I only will drive out there. Um, I try to like stay on the ATV when I check my cameras or be in the truck and just take a step or two out. Like I, maybe that's more than I need to be worried about, but it just seems like the the room for error is really small when there's like, man, if he's in this bedding area and if he's not in that bedding area, I have no way to hunt him. So I can't screw up, you know, the edge of that bedding area. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. So that's that's the first week of December. I get back home and I remember thinking, all right, I got to try to take a couple stabs at him. And we had a muzzleloader season open still for a few days. I can't remember how many more days I had after getting back from that trip, but I had time. I had some number of days, two, three, four days, something like that. Um, and so I remember like telling my wife, like, hey, you know, that buck I'm after was showing up, you know, last week. If we got the right conditions, I got to try to take a stab or two at him with the gun. Um, I didn't think that there'd be a strong chance to be able to get another take at him with the bow at this point in the season. But with a gun, you know, maybe I can make it work. So I I waited for a wind that would cut across the top of the swamp. So I, I don't want a wind that's going to blow, obviously, straight into that swamp. And I can only access the swamp from the north. So I need to make sure I've got like southerly ish winds, but ideally like easterly or westerly, because if I have a a wind that blows from the swamp straight to the north, it blows out a a whole nother bedding area region on the neighbors. And, you know, there's always the chance that he might be over there. It's not that far away. So there's basically a bedding to the north and south. And I want my wind blowing east to west right in between the two. So I've got that, you know, relatively safe wind um, where I can get close. So I had two hunts. There ended up being two days where I had a wind that would work and, you know, decent temperatures, decent conditions. Um, you know, I noticed from those pictures of the days he daylighted, three of those days he daylighted were like cold, like dropping temperature, cold front type days. Um, one of them was actually a warm up day. So I thought, well, if I can get like half decent temps and the right wind, I got to try. The first time I tried for him, didn't see him at all. Didn't see like, if I remember right, like very little activity. Um, and this was actually, this is actually a night where I had to break that rule. I just told you for whatever reason, I can't remember why. Um, but I, I had to slip out by foot and I guess I must've been so desperate for him that I, 
you know, didn't have a exit strategy or an exit helper. And I thought there's a little two track where I can walk back through the edge of the timber and, you know, maybe get away with it from the location I hunted that night. So I had to be going out on foot and I just remember getting very close to the front of the property. Like I've, I've walked a long ways from where I was hunting and from where I would have expected to see him. And I'm kind of in a low spot in this little finger of timber. And then there's like a rise then extends like there's a hill that goes up to the edge of the timber and then into that cut cornfield. And I can see a deer silhouetted on that hill in the cut corn, maybe 80, 90 yards away. And so I just pull up the binos. It's, it's after dark now. And I pull up the binoculars though. And in like the, I guess there must've been some moonlight or just cause of the silhouette. I could see like instantly it was him. He was standing there with a the doe and uh, there he is like 80, 90 yards away. And so now I feel like I'm stuck. Like, I don't want to go walk and continue walking that direction and bump him. I'm pissed at myself for going and hunting on this night when I didn't have a good way to get out. Um, so I ended up just sitting down in the dirt for, I don't know, like half an hour and just kind of waiting around, twiddling my thumbs, texting my wife, said I was, I was going to be late that night and just waited till they disappeared. And I hoped that they'd moved off far enough. And um, then I circled out as far away as I could get. Now, this is kind of a funny story. As I'm walking out, I'm getting close to the road. Um, I see a deer flag off. Like I see a white tail run off towards the road. And then there's a car coming towards this road. And then I hear, <sighs> and I'm like, oh no. Oh no, 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 no. Did I just spook the buckham after to get hit by a truck? I mean, I was like super concerned. So I raced up to the road. And I went down to the car and you know, I checked with the guy, like asked him if he was okay and everything. And all the while I'm trying to like, look off to the side and trying to see the deer he hit and like trying to subtly like get the, get the information I'm trying to get. <laughs> You're like the biggest asshole, good Samaritan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I, I made sure that he was okay. and The car wasn't too badly damaged and all was fine. And I'm like asking him, like I, I was trying to talk to him and he was being actually weird with me. Um, like didn't, I don't know. I was like, do you need help? Are you okay? And he just kind of like was like shaking his head. And then, um, and then I saw the deer and it was a doe, um, off on the side of the road. And he's like, ah, I'm taking the deer. I'm like, oh, okay, well you need, you need help. And he's just like shake. She keeps shaking his head at me. It was like a very weird encounter, but maybe he was just shook up after the whole thing. Was um, he starstruck? Did he know who you were? <laughs> I don't think so. Tony. Okay. <laughs> uh, definitely not. Um, but yeah, so that was like a scary moment. Cause I thought for sure I just bumped my buck into a truck. But, uh, but no, so, um, that then led to a few days later, I had decent conditions, decent wind again. I slipped back to the edge of the swamp. Um, and last light, he actually does pop out, but I must've been, God, I wish I could. I, what I remember about this encounter, I wish I wrote, wrote down, I'm, I'm doing a hunting journal this year where I'm actually writing down the specifics of every hunt. Um, not just like I'm writing down the conditions. I'm writing down like where I went. I'm writing down what I see, but I'm also like writing down like what I did and the decisions I made and stuff just because like, I wish I could remember exactly what happened on this night because what I remember is seeing him pop out of the swamp, but he headed in the, he headed in the direction away from me. And I, I can't remember if I had a gun or if it was now regular bow season because I, I was considering getting down and trying to stalk in like circle up ahead of him and see if I could get ahead of him and get a shot at him. Um, I think maybe it was with a bow and 
back in the day, I never would have considered doing that. But after last year with all the crazy on the ground stuff, I must have been feeling kind of wily because I remember thinking like if he just slows down and starts feeding, I might be able to circle and and slip down and just do something crazy. Like at this point, I've been having a really rough season. I was kind of willing to do something crazy to try to salvage some kind of success. Um, but he just never slowed down. He just like marched and uh, and just marched straight down the edge of that swamp and away from me. And and that was it. And that was you know, he walked out of my life. That was sometime mid you know December, and that was it. I didn't get any more pictures of him. Didn't see him at all um, until the postseason. I think when I was out there doing one of my drive bys, I, I glassed him up one night. I think, um, and that confirmed that he he at least made it through the year. So that's 2020 and that's 2021. And with, with that season in the rearview mirror, I remember thinking, okay, once I kind of, you know, I was burnt out after last year, but once my mind kind of turned back to whitetails this summer, I got really excited about stuff. I started thinking about this buck and, you know, thinking he's probably the guy that's going to show back up. And I think I've got like two windows. I think there's like going to be an October window based on what he did last year. And I think there's going to be that December window again. Um, you know, there's this, this idea of like these annual patterns, right. That especially like older bucks, they, they tend to do certain things at the same time of year, year after year, all, all other things being equal. Um, you can start to see some of these kinds of tendencies that repeat year after year. Um, and so I was counting on two things. I was counting on his core area, continuing to stay tight to that swamp. And then I was hoping that, Hey, I'll have that early October window, maybe a, a, a moment there in late October. And then like the first 10, 12 days of December or whatever, like maybe that'll be a good one. And, um, so I do some prep work in the summer leading up to the year. I trimmed out some new trees that I could hunt. I did a little scouting on the edge of that swamp to try to figure out some spots I could hunt around that. If he was around again, um, I put cameras along, along that edge again. Historically, I hadn't actually ran as many cameras around that swamp edge as I started now that I knew that junior was in there so much. So now I've got those gaps covered well again, this time with cell cameras again. And, um, August 18th, he shows back up for the first time. I get cell pictures of him. And then throughout August and September, um, he was daylighting, he was showing up and, you know, I was, I was excited about that. Um, but as I already talked about on a different podcast, you know, I, I wanted to target this buck on opening night, but the wind ended up messing me up and I had to pivot to a different location to hunt a different deer. Um, I just, I just couldn't see a way I could pull off the wind, hunt that swamp edge without him winding me with this like Northeast wind that would blow right into where, where I thought he'd be like everything he was doing this year in 22 was like straight out of the book from what he did in 2021. Once I like realized he was in that swamp, he was popping out in the same places. Um, he was coming back in the morning. Like he, he lived, this is like at least as best as I could tell from like the Intel I was able to get in the places I had access. He was in there more than any other place I had access to at least. Um, so couldn't hunt him early in October cause that wind ended up killing a different buck in a different place. So now I kind of pull out and I, I take some time to just, I took my son out hunting in some different places, took out some hunters, did some mentored hunts on the back 40, um, shot some, shot a doe, tried to shoot multiple does. I got one, um, did some of that kind of stuff until we get to late October. 
We get to late October, and now I'm thinking, all right, this is that window. I got a, I got a daylight picture or two of him last year around this window. Um, I have to leave again on October 30th to go on one of these rotations. I've got a, I've got a chance here. So those last like seven, eight days of October, I hunted two or three times just inside that swamp, um, hunting near those little low spot and inside corners that I mentioned to you already from 2021, um, hoping that, you know, I could catch him coming out to feed and or check does, um, you know, that last week of October. Um, so, you know, I picked those nights when I had the, the best weather conditions. So both of those times, I, I can think of two specific nights. I think I hunted two nights in the edge of the swamp. And then there was a third night that I couldn't hunt in the swamp, but I hunted a finger of timber just across, um, you know, like 80 yards across from it in another spot because of the wind. Um, so again, I'm, I'm hunting this when I've got that like cross that corner cutting wind. And then I'm hunting when I had like a combination of dropping temperatures and rising barometric pressure. Um, that just seems to be like, that's like a post front kind of thing. You get a front that comes through, it yeah. changes the weather up a little bit. And at least most of the time I've seen like that to be a pretty good trigger for like a little bit more, you know, daylight movement or a little bit earlier movement from the deer coming out to feed in the evenings. Um, and so I did it first night. I remember I got on this edge of the swamp. It looked like awesome. And there was ripped up, you know, you could tell he was in there slipped in on a very, it was a cool, it was a great day to hunt this spot. The trick with hunting his little zone here in the swamp is that this is a high deer density area and does bed around the edge of the swamp in a couple different places. And there's, there's a couple spots that are predictable, but then there's like some unpredictable random, like a random doe will be here or there every once in a while. So anytime I'm going to hunt the edge of it, it's, it's risky. Um, so I decided I would slip in there. I did not have, I have one pre hung stand on the edge of that, uh, swamp but I didn't have, it wasn't like a spot I wanted to be based on what I was seeing. So I was going in there with my saddle and I was going to kind of see where the sign was telling me like, okay, I, I know he historically has come in and out of this little corner and I know this low spots, a spot where deer come through a lot, but I also want to go in there and just kind of read the terrain, read the sign and see if there's something that, you know, is there a big fresh scrape somewhere is do it. Can I find like the rub line that he's using this year that pops out of the swamp that maybe is 30 yards down from where I would have sat. Um, so that was my game plan, brought my sticks and saddle very windy day, which is one of the reasons why I picked this day to hunt because it was windy in the early afternoon. And then for the last hour of daylight, it was going to tail off. Um, and I thought like, that'd be perfect. I'll have the cover to get in there and get set up. I can kind of poke around just a little bit, find the right tree. And then for the last hour of daylight, you know, it should be dynamite. And, um, you know, long story short on that, felt great about it, but didn't see him. Saw a lot of deer, didn't see him. And then I think the following week was the next day I had similar conditions, corner cutting wind, enough wind for the setup that I could slip in and scout around with my saddle, get set up, and then, um, you know, be ready for that last hour or two when it settled down a little bit. And um, another cold late October. If you remember, like there were some really nice cold days there in late October here yep. in the upper Midwest. Um, so I think it was like 40 or 41 or I don't know, something like that. And this time came in on the other edge of the swamp and, uh, slipped in there a little deeper than I usually do. I was kind of feeling like, 
you know, why not be a little more aggressive? I already killed one nice Michigan buck. I don't have to kill another one. Um, you know, I've not, I couldn't figure them out last year. Why not swing a little bit harder this year? And either it works or I fail spectacularly, but you know, who cares? So I pushed in deeper into the swamp than I usually do trying to just see, you know, see if maybe that would be the ticket to getting on him. And I had that win to, to get in there. Um, and I just like, just, you know, just, I've, I'm just learning like patience and details and the little things just matter a lot. And so it was like, I did not take a step unless the wind gusted. And then I'd stand still for a minute and then I got a big gust and I'd take three steps and then I'd stop and just did that until I was able to work my way into the spot, found the tree. Um, and that night, I saw his running buddy. He had another really nice three-year-old buck that he'd been, you know, every time I got pictures of him in September and October, um, he was with this three-year-old and I saw him that night, but did not see the big guy. And, uh, you know, exciting to see that other one, but the big guy didn't show. And now I've got to, got to take off for our trip. Um, so that takes us to November, take off to Nebraska, head to Ohio, um, I got a picture of Junior on November 6 and 7 with a doe. And then I don't get another picture of him for weeks. The rut continues on. Um, I come back after the one what, week. What do you hold on a second, Mark? What, what do you think he's doing when he's bailing like that? Do you know where you think he is? I don't know. And, and he did it last year and he did it this year. And I can't put my finger on it. Because there's a lot of does in this area. Like he, he doesn't need to go anywhere else to find does. He can find does in that his main core, or at least the main core that I hunt. Um, so I don't get it. I, I don't know. Um, I haven't had another buck that I've hunted in this area before that I you know had 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 watched over the years do the same thing. Um, so I I don't know. I, I've got no good answer. I just, I asked that because I've, I've started seeing that being able to hunt this place that I have in Southwestern Wisconsin. Now, you know, last year we had this buck that was really cool and he was so consistent. He was the first deer I saw in the place, like super consistent. And then he was gone all of the rut. He was there in October and then last year during the rut. And so you're like, oh, he's, he left to, to find some does, even though there he definitely didn't have to. And then this year, because the biggest deer on the place got killed last year, he became like the king, right? Like he was living there and we didn't have time. My buddy actually killed him right before Halloween. So we don't know for sure if he would have left or not, but like on paper, you look at that and go, it doesn't make sense. Like, why would you make an exodus for two weeks or a month here when this property offers you everything that you should need, but there's something going on that they're finding somewhere else. And I, I was just wonder, like, yeah, you know, it'd be so hard to figure out unless you had access to these other spots, but why, like what, why, why would a buck do that? It's, it's so, so, uh, perplexing. And I guess that's why like this stuff just, does it for me because like I, those questions i love like wondering and trying to figure out those questions like why does he do that why why is he you know why does he show up in early december like clockwork uh why does he why did he he, he would have been the king of the entire roost like all the stuff i have access to in this area he would have been the best oldest buck 
But why is he not even trying to take over that other swamp or even spending time over there? Like I've had other years where like a big boy will be all over it. Um, why does he want to be just in this little Southern section? Um, I don't know, but, um, but he definitely, he had something going on elsewhere. Um, and he wasn't even, I had one neighbor. There's a neighbor who has access to a decent sized chunk down in that area. And he wasn't getting pictures of him either. He had disappeared for him as well. So he, you know, he traveled somewhere significantly far away. Like it wasn't like he just bumped over next door or something. Um, he, he moved elsewhere and who knows what he was doing or, you know, uh, I, I have a, I have one part of an answer to the question maybe for this year, because as the story progresses, there was one new factor added to the story that, um, maybe had some influence this year, maybe not. Um, but I guess we should get to that. So November passes and, um, November passes and, you know, don't get any pictures of him. Uh, gun season, as I mentioned before, I leave this place alone. Um, so I go up, do the Northern Michigan family deer camp thing, have a great time up there. Um, come back in late November and I'm thinking, all right, you know, I might, I might try to take a stab at him. I'm, I'm counting on him showing back up anytime now, late November, early December. Like my plan all along was I gotta, you know, I gotta hope for that annual pattern. Um, I actually almost deviated off the plan because like a decent, another nice buck started showing up in a totally different area. And I actually went after him a couple times with my son. Um, I was telling you, I think on via text message, I, I took my four year old out a couple times to try to kill another decent buck that was just in a place that might've worked with a kiddo and a blind. Um, so we had fun, but that didn't work out. Um, so it's late November now. And I'm just like, I told my wife, I said, all right, when like the first week of December hits like December two, three, whatever that window ends up being, that's our muzzleloader season. And that's going to be like my last hurrah for a buck in Michigan. So I said like any day the conditions are right, I'm going to be hunting this buck junior. You're sick of me talking about him. Um, this is my last chance. I'm going to try to get him with the muzzleloader. And if I don't get him, then, then I'll be done. I'll just focus on, you know, going out a few times for does and uh, it'll be game over. But this is like, he showed up here last year, this time frame. I bet he'll do it again. So just, just playing on, let's be very flexible with our schedule. <laughs> and so she's like, okay, she rolls her eyes at me, yada, yada. Um, and then like November 28 or something, bam, I get a picture of him back for the first time in about a month. He shows back up, you know, right on schedule. It's a nighttime picture, but he's alive and he's back. So super confidence boost. Really, it was like one of those things when I got that picture, just like a big grin popped up on my face. And it's like, all right, man, the, the annual pattern, he showed back up. Um, the hunt's on, basically, is what I thought then. And uh, and then it was just a matter of figuring out when's like the best opportunities to, to take that strike. Because again, like, as I mentioned, the same stuff that has been a challenge here in the past is now a challenge in December. So he is in the swamp. It's very hard to hunt to the edge of the swamp because there's all these does, especially hard now in the late season because there's like no cover. So like slipping in to get to the edge of the swamp is very, very risky. Um, I also know that there's this open cut bean field around the swamp this year. And so the whole exit thing is a challenge. There's going to be a lot of deer feeding out there. So every time I hunt, you know, even with someone driving in to clear the field, um, you know, that adds up if I do that three, four or five times. 
So I just I knew like all right I've got to I've got to pick my moments. I'm going to have a handful of op- opportunities to do it, and I've got to pick the right ones. Um, and so I, I just planned on not even trying to hunt the swamp edge, but hunting this finger of timber that's just across from the swamp edge. It'd be about 70 yards. There's like a, a finger of this field that is in between the timber finger and the swamp. And I can hunt that timber edge, this little finger of timber safely. I can get into that. Like my access in there is bulletproof with, with like a kind of any of any of these winds that cuts the corner. Like I was talking about like anything easterly or westerly that doesn't dump too far down into the south. I can get away with and I can get there safely and you know, if I have a firearm, I can reach out to him at 70 yards or 80 yards and, you know, still be in the game. So I went few, like a week ago and I looked at all of my trail camera pictures. Again, I had of him around the swamp, looked at all the daylight photos. I, you know, logged all, you know, me on my weird spreadsheet stuff. I, I like to put all my stuff in there and I like to look at, okay, what are the dates he daylighted? What were the wind directions on the days he daylighted? What were the temperatures doing? Um, just trying to see like, is there any other thing I'm missing? Like, I'm just trying to better pick. Like if I get three shots at him, I want to make sure I pick the best three days. Um, because every one of those days is going to hurt me a little bit. Um, so, so that's what I was trying to do leading into this window. I had been in Ohio. I did it like a three day hunt in Ohio and kept, you know, watching the forecast, watching the forecast. And I decided that the third December 3rd, 2022 was like one of those highlight days within that December, like, you know, sometime between the second and the 11th was the window I was looking at. And as the weather was coming together, the third looked like one of those picture perfect things I was talking about. It was big cold front. It was going to drop more than 20 degrees in a 12 hour span, actually in the morning. So it was going to be like 50 degrees in the morning. And by the time the afternoon arrived, it was going to be down to 28. It was going to be very windy overnight and all day. And the wind was going to die down for the last hour and a half. Again, it was going to go from like 25 mile an hour winds to like 12. So that looked really good. There was going to be this uh, rise, big rise in barometric pressure and a reduction in cloud cover kind of happening right at that primetime window too, which I don't know about cloud cover as much, but it just seems like when you get those high barometric like bluebird days that are cold, those are just like seem to be like dynamite days for deer to be on their feet. Um, so all those things lined up for December 3rd and December 3rd, 2021 was the day he showed back up in daylight last year. So that led me to the hunt. I drove home from Ohio, told my wife, uh, um, you know, I got to hunt December 3rd and she tells me, oh, well, that's the day that my friends from work are coming over for dinner. I was like, uh, uh, well, I got a hunt. <laughs> this is like the day. This is the day I think it'll happen. Um, so we end up asking uh, her friends to come late, to come after dark, so that not only can I hunt in time, but I also was able to convince my wife to leave our house and be willing and able to drive out and clear the field on this property if I needed to before a company arrived. Because <laughs> I was like, I can't hunt unless it was like unless you or somebody else can come out and clear this field. I can't hunt it because like. 
I know if I try to walk out, it'll ruin any other hunts I have. So like, I, I have to be able to hunt and I need somebody to be able to clear this place. <laughs> and so she's a, she's an angel. She agreed to both of those things. And, uh, uh yeah. anyway, so when you get divorced, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it'll be at the time when like self-driving cars are, are like so advanced. You could just dial up your truck and have it drive out there on a little track on you. Like you'll be able to like show your pin on on X and your car is going to start up and drive out there and blow that field. Yeah, and, man. Uh, that's, that's one yeah. piece of technology I would have to take advantage of. <laughs> Because, because well, you I, will when you get divorced. When she's finally like, "Oh my god, <laughs> I'm I, done with this, dude." Yeah, man. When I run out of favors, I can call on my local friends and uh, the goodwill of my wife to do that for me. I will be in trouble. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> because yeah, this this uh, general area does not set up well for solo exits. <laughs> so yeah, I got very lucky in this case, and that I got the yes, I got the green light on those two things. Um. So it was like one of those nights where they're my very favorite times to go hunting. It's like when you've got like the anxious rumbling stomach tightness in your chest as you're getting ready to hunt because it just feels so right. Do you know those days? Yep. So, so just, just exciting when you, when you have like, when it's not just a hunt, but it's like a well planned like strike. I don't know. Like it's, when you go in there with a lot of confidence. I love that feeling versus when you go out there like just, well, I sure hope something works out. Um, I really like going in, like knowing like it should, it, you know, I've got a great chance because of A and B and C and D and, you know, it's just like dialed and I felt dialed that night. Um, so I slipped in, I, I slip into that finger timber. There's like a low spot inside this little, it's like, you know, only like 30 yards, 40 yard wide finger of timber. And I can get down this low spot, kind of a ditch and I can work that way all the way back to be parallel to that swamp. I had a tree stand that historically had been up there. I thought I'll, I'll hunt this tree stand on my first night because I had a West Northwest wind, which would blow, you know, between those two bedding areas, cut the Northern part of the swamp. But I didn't think he was bedding in that little corner. Um, I didn't mention this, but in, you know, past springs, I have gone into the swamp in the winter and scouted and I found like big solo beds on some humps in that swamp. So I kind of knew the, the little corner, there was, there was a portion within the swamp where if I had to put my money on where he was probably bedded when he was in that swamp, he was probably in that little corner. So, you know, I had a general assumption of where it was probably safe for my wind to, to cut across and where it wouldn't be safer to cut across. Um, and so, you know, with the West Northwest wind, I thought, all right, I'll, I'll hunt this Eastern edge, right? Yeah. This Eastern edge the first night. And if I don't kill him that first night, I'll come back in. And the next day we've got, um, or like the next good weather day, it looked like it was actually going to shift to like a Northeast, East, Northeast wind. And so I could then hunt further to the West that time and kind of cut across the other side of the swamp. Um, and you know, I'd, I'd be able to work different sections of that depending on which you know which way the wind was blowing and which way he ended up moving if if you know he would do all these things i was hoping he might do um you know i i don't by no means did i think like the annual pattern thing was guaranteed to repeat but i definitely thought it was a feather in my cap for like possible confidence like it was it, it could happen again and you know, the fact that I had good conditions and last year he had a 10 day window of like activity here, um, you know, gave me that hope that it was, it was worth taking a few strikes in there. So 
with those great weather conditions, I figured deer would be on their feet pretty early. So I headed in there at like two o'clock in the afternoon, um, slipped in there, got up in the tree, got situated. Um, and like, I had just gotten all settled in. Like I just sat down and like had that first moment where it's all set. You take a deep breath, you kind of take that first, like slow gaze around, you, you know? And I gaze over to my right towards the swamp and I see a flash of movement and I pull up my binoculars and he's there. Like within 10 minutes of me getting situated in the tree, he's standing there 110 yards away, give or take inside that swamp and just standing there. And I just, my jaw just dropped. It's the first time I've seen him this entire year, right? I've gotten pictures of him this year, but never once encountered him yet this year. Never saw him when glassing the summer, never observed him, you know, from afar scouting, never saw him on any of the other hunts. Here he is, two, I don't know, two thirty, two forty five, something like that. Broad daylight, standing in the middle of the swamp, edge of the swamp. Um, so just shock was the first thing I'm feeling. Um, heart starts beating real fast. Pull up my binos and I'm looking at him and you know, now the next thing I think is like, okay, what's he doing? Like it, is there anywhere I can get a shot here soon? Cause he's, he's already kind of in range. Um, but it's like thick brush. I'm looking like, is there a gap here? Is there a hole there? Is there somewhere I could actually reposition myself to get a shot? Um, and I just, I didn't see it. I didn't see any way I could get a shot if, you know, in the near future of where he was, but I thought, man, if he's right here right now, I mean, what's he going to do? Is he just going to slowly work out here? Like super early. I mean, last year, that first daylight picture I had of him was 3.30 in the afternoon, which is super early because it's getting dark at like 5, I don't know, 5.35 or 5.40 or something like that. So, I mean, he's out really early, um, but he did that last year. So, who knows? Like, I, I can't explain that. Um, it's not something he ever does any other time of the year, but I don't know. Big cold front. Uh, he's wore down from the rut. Maybe he he knows this is his little sanctuary, and I'm hardly out there at all in November. Um, maybe he's going to pop out. So I kind of, I grab my gun slowly off the side of the tree and kind of get myself positioned and I'm kind of looking, all right, well, I need him to maybe walk like 40, 50 yards down until he'd finally be in like a spot. I might be able to, um, see him and get a shot if he stays in the swamp, or maybe he'll pop out into this bean field, this little finger of like 70 yards of beans. Um, but he doesn't do that. He just stands there for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. 20 minutes. He's just standing there. Okay. He looks around then he puts his head down, like licks his back legs. And then he looks around. He kind of rubs up on trees, takes a nibble. I'm thinking, man, I guess this is what, you know, mature bucks do. Like they just stand and watch and don't move. Um, and then he takes a step and then he takes another step and I'm like, he's kind of walking weird. And then he takes another step. And I realize like he's limping badly. Like as he starts trying to move, like I'm seeing that he's like struggling to move and now I'm realizing, well, he's hurt. So he got shot or something. And so he maybe took like five steps, um, five, 10 steps, something like that. And you could see like, once he started going, like he's got a real significant hitch in his step. Something's wrong with his back left leg. Um, and he beds down. So I see, I can see him bedded there. He's like 110, 120 yards, something like that. And he's bedded facing directly at me. I can't see like his eyes. Like there's like a five inch, four inch like sapling right between his eyes. But I can tell like for those antlers popping on either side of this tree. And as I'm like shifting around trying to get a better look. And I can tell like he's basically facing right at me. 
Um, it's now sunny, and I'm thinking, all right, what do I do in this scenario? The buck I've been after showed up. He's here. He's in sight. He's in range, but I can't shoot him because of brush in the way, both close to me and close to him. And now he's bedded. So I think, all right, can I somehow get out of the tree and like stalk in on him? Like, I feel like I got to take advantage of this opportunity now, especially with him being hurt. Who knows like how bad this injury is? Who knows if I'll ever see him again? Um, I don't know. There's like a thousand questions racing through my head now. Um, so I'm bouncing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Is there any way I can get out of this tree and stalk in him? Or is that too risky? Should I just stay here and wait and hope that he's eventually going to get up and come my way? Uh, 20 minutes, 25 minutes passes, and I, I'm debating all this in my head. I decide, like, I just don't see any way I can get out without him seeing me right now. The way he's bedded and where my steps coming out of this tree are, I'd have to come down on his side of the tree. So I'd be in, like, perfect view. Like, there's there's branches and stuff in the way, but, you know, I can see him. He can see me. If I'm moving down that tree, it'd be, like, a, a very obvious thing. I just couldn't imagine any way that would work out. So I decide, all right, you're just going to wait it out. You're going to be patient. Don't like act impulsively. Let this play out a little bit longer. So 20 minutes passes, something like that. He stands up again and takes a step in my direction, kind of angles like he might come out. I reposition, start thinking, okay, maybe this is going to happen. Getting re-excited, takes a step, kind of nibbles, licks his back leg, kind of pushes his antlers up against a tree. Uh, I'm, you know, heart shaking again. And, uh, then he beds again. So he maybe walked like five yards from where he was before beds down again. Same kind of situation, still thick stuff. I can see him, but you know, no shot. Uh, but now where he's bedded, he's not facing directly at me. He's now facing kind of like perpendicular to me. So, you know, by that, I mean like he's, if, if I'm facing due South, like if, let me describe this. I am due north of him. Okay. So he's in the swamp about 20 yards inside the edge of the swamp. I'm due north of him, like 120 yards and he is facing due west. And, you know, so one eyeball is facing my way. The other eyeball is not facing me. Um, but still like, you know, visible. Um, and so now I'm back to that same debate. Like, do I, do I stay or do I go? Do I stay or do I go? And, it's now somewhere in the four o'clock. It's like four o'clock ish, somewhere in that ballpark. And I remember thinking like, you're, you're running out of time to make a move on him. If you want to make a move on him, the sooner you do it, the better, because every minute you let pass is another minute that more deer are likely to come out right now. There's no other deer out, but I know like, especially with the conditions, like there's going to be a pile of deer out feeding here soon. Um, and if there's like 15 deer out feeding there and you try to crawl this tree and sneak towards them, like you're going to blow it up and bust him out of here. So if you don't go soon, you might never have the chance to do it. So part of me was saying like, I had to get out of the tree and try to make something happen. Another part of me says you could do that and totally blow it up. He'll see you. You'll screw it up somehow. And you maybe don't ever, maybe you didn't need to do that at all. You could have just waited out in 10 minutes from now. He's going to stand up, walk out into the edge of the field and give you a clear shot. And it'll be the best thing ever. Um, so that was, that was my debate. And the one other thing I had going for me was it was windy. Still, I still had some like gusting winds. It wasn't dying down yet, but I, I knew it was going to die down. Right. Cause the forecast said like that last hour, it was going to dip, you know, 
get down there to a relatively calm, you know, 10 miles an hour, something like that. So that was another reason why, like, if I don't do it now, it's gonna be much harder to do it later. So that's where I'm at. It's like four o'clock, four fifteen, something like that. I've got like a little over an hour of daylight left. He's bedded 120 yards away, kind of quartering, uh, looking, you know, perpendicular to me, and I'm in the tree trying to make a decision. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Tony Peterson, what would you do in that situation? Oh, man. I recently, very, very recently ran into this situation of watching two bucks drop down into a uh, a low spot in a field while I was muzzleloader hunting, and the clock was ticking, and I crawled out there 
and got busted by the bigger buck who had broke in a direction I didn't think of. And what it is. So I blew it up and I, I, it was like a similar thing that you're talking about where you're like, there's a chance if I just wait, they're going to pop out, but there's also, you know, a real chance that it won't. So I got to make something happen. And I don't know about you, man, but every time I try to make something happen, like you're talking about, I feel like I screw it up. I feel like my lane is just sit and wait for him to come to me. Yeah. Well, even though I don't heed that advice often <laughs> is, is where I'm going. So I don't know. I know the smarter move would probably be to wait him out, but I'm curious to hear where it went. Yeah. So I had all the same, you know, those things racing through my mind. I'm thinking through, like you said, many times it's the safer bet to wait it out and let it come to you. But then the flip side, you know, there are even like, even the very best deer hunters in the very best places only get a handful of like close encounters with like a big mature target buck. Yep. Like there's only going to be so many times where our cross our paths will actually cross. And I'm thinking like, this might be the only time I see him all year. And like, I can, I can sit around and wait or I can try to capitalize on this. And you know, when the first place he was bedded, I thought through all these things and I thought like, I just can't envision a scenario where I could safely get out of here and, and, and reposition and get a shot. But when he repositioned the second time I reassessed it all, and I thought like I do see a possibility. Like I think maybe with where he's at, if I go really, really carefully, I might be able to get out of the tree without him seeing me. And if I can get out of the tree without him seeing me, I felt like there should be a decent chance that I could use that wind to, to move and get to a spot I could shoot him. So eventually I decided, especially I think him being injured pushed me over the edge. Like I thought like, I don't know what the injury is. I don't know what's going on, but um, it just felt like it felt like a now or never kind of thing. So I uh, slung the gun over my shoulder and waited till a big gust of wind. And I swung my leg around off the tree stand and put on that ladder. And then I hung there. And I waited for the next big gust of wind. I took a step down and then I hung there for a minute. And then I waited for the next big gust of wind. I took another step down, waited for 20 seconds. Another big gust of wind took a step. I, I waited till every time there was like a big like tree limb shaking gust of wind, I'd make a slow move. And then I wait. And then I did that all the way down to the bottom of the tree. And I could confirm at least like a, the last time I could see him was when I was about a third of the way down the tree. And I could like just be like, okay, I'm pretty sure those are his tines still. I don't think he's boogered. So I got down to the bottom of the tree and I felt confident. Like, I think I got down without him seeing me. Um, so now I'm, you know, 120 yards due north of him. I'm in this little finger timber. There's like a 70 yard wide field between me and him. And then he's like 20, 30 yards inside of the swamp. He's facing west wind is blowing from the west in his face so i know that if i need to, if i'm going to be able to get positioned to somewhere i could see him and get a shot i need to circle behind him so i've got to get downwind of him and behind him visually so i get on my belly well first when i'm in this finger timber i'm on my uh fours so i crawl to the edge of the timber and like i, I crawl a few steps get up on my knees try to glass, see if I can see anything, can't see anything, crawl a little bit more, get back up my knees, glass, can't see anything, eventually work my way to the edge of the field. 
and there's a very slight rise in the field. So like I'm just a little low and he's just a little low on his side. So I think that kept, you know, me from being able to see him and him being able to see me. So I eventually get to the edge, keep thinking like anytime I basically wanted to just see the tips of his antlers and just be able to confirm like exactly where he was. And then I would like shimmy and continue shimmering. So I just kept checking, kept checking, kept checking, could never spot him. So I get to the edge and now I'm, you know, more concerned about him seeing me. So I belly cross and I'm just on the belly. I just like put my gun out in front of me, pull myself forward, put the gun out in front of me, pull myself forward. And I just do that. I'm just like sliding along the edge of the leaves. Um, and again, waiting for wind gusts too, because now I'm starting to worry like I'm close enough to him. Like if I, if I'm not careful, he's going to hear me too. So over the course of the next half hour, I think, give or take, that's what I do. I'm just belly crawling my way around the edge of this timber and this finger of cut beans, trying to circle downwind of him and down view of him and trying to circle around basically the way this, um, this is like a, a peninsula of a field and it's going to end about a hundred yards east of him. It ends and then like the, the timber line curves back towards him into the swamp. So I belly crawl all the way to the end of that peninsula of the field, staying on the edge of it. I start curling back around. So now I'm, I was heading east. Now I'm heading back west. I'm on his side of the field now. And every, you know, five yards or something, I pop up on my knees and glass can never see him. At one point I saw, or at one point I heard like shuffling and I'm thinking, uh oh, he's up and moving. Can't see him. Uh, maybe another couple minutes later, I'm up glassing again. I see like a flickering white tail in that same general area. And then like my heart drops. I'm like, uh oh. He saw me, he heard me, or another deer spooked, something happened, like the jig's up. Like I just saw like a white flickering tail, like not necessarily like a running away tail, but like a flagging tail, like a like a like a flicking. Um and it was like moving away. And so now my confidence is dropping very quickly. So I heard this movement, now I see this flickering tail. Like, what you know, what what happened? I can't find him. I swear I should be able to see him by now. Like where I'm at, I, I thought for sure I'd be able to see his antlers or see something, nothing. Um, so I, I almost gave up. Like I almost like, he's not there. He, he boogered, he's out of there. Um, I'm all the way now on his side. Like I gotta be getting really close. Like I'm within, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 yards, probably of where he should be, where at least where I left him. But, you know, it's been a long time since I climbed out of that tree because I've been going so slow. So, I mean, it's been half hour, 40 minutes, I don't know, something like that since I made the decision to come out. So, who knows what could happen in that window, right? And I knew that was one of the risks of doing this is that he might just take off some other direction. I'd never know it. Um, well, and you, you got to be bumping up on the end of shooting light fairly soon there too, huh? So, I still, so, well, not quite, not yet. Cause, okay. Cause when I, cause it's getting shooting light, like five forty something or something like that. And I got out of that tree like sometime after four, if I remember. Oh, right. okay. So if, if I remember, I think at this point it's like approaching five o'clock is what I think it is. So I've got some time, but what I am worried about is other deer. Like there's going to be other deer. And I actually do spot some other deer back in the swamp. Um, and I glass, I'm like, Oh no, that's him like way back in the swamp walking away from me. I'm like, God, oh, geez, but it ended up being some does. But I knew like any time now, other deer have got to, you got to believe there's going to be some deer coming out here to feed and they're going to see me on the edge um, and blow it out and blow the whole thing. So 
confidence is quickly waning. I'm worrying about these different things. But I, I remember I kept telling myself, like, you got to act like he's still there. Like the, the second you give up on it and stand up in defeat, he'll be right there and run away. Like you're do you, you gotta assume he's there all the way until like you're standing over top of where he thought he was. You gotta act like the game is still on. That's, I mean, it, that lesson right there, how many mule deer has that saved when people crawl into a spot when they're spotting stock in mule deer and they think they're gone and they stand up. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't so speak common. to it. Yeah. I can't speak to it from mule deer, but like I've, I've had this happen with turkeys. I've had it happen with whitetails. Like I, I've been burned by making the wrong assumption too many times. So, so this time I, I remember like actively like drilling in my head, like assume he's there, assume he's there. You got to just keep operating, like stay stealthy, still slow down, like just do the thing right. Even though it felt like there's no way this is going to work now. Um. So just after I remember having that thought, I remember taking a couple more crawls forward, get up on my knees again. I'm like right there now. I'm there was, there was this big down tree right in the edge of the woods. And so that was like my landmark, like, all right, he's just off of that down tree where the root ball is back behind us somewhere. And now I'm like within, I, I can toss a ball to that tree ball. Now the, the down tree root system. So I get up on my knees again, pull my binos glassing in there. Like, why can't I see this buck? And then boom, antlers right in my right in my glass like walks out right in front of me he'd been further back behind those trees steps out walking like fast um you know i don't if he's limping consistently step 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 he's like on a mission now he walks right out he's like 45 yards away 50 yards away oh man and back but he's behind one layer of trees so i see him i'm on my knees on the edge of the field pull up my shooting stick and gun. I see one gap in the woods. He steps, steps, enters the gap. I go, meh, meh, meh. He stops, pull the trigger. He drops in his tracks. I killed Junior. How fun was that? It was insane, man. It (laughs) was insane. It was so much fun. I couldn't believe it. Like, I mean, the emotional roller coaster from like 2.30 to 5 o'clock was so insane up and down and all around. And, um, I mean, it was just a wild ride. Um, really, really nuts. Really. That's so cool. Really nuts. And, uh, yeah, walked over there and I mean, he, he, he was dead instantly walked over there kind of in, in shock. And, um, you know, he was, he was just an awesome buck, a big, big, heavy, eight pointer that I've been watching for three years. And finally now he was, he was laying there on the ground and, you know, was, was curious about the injury and it was not a shot. It was something happened to his foot, like to his hoof, his hoof was swollen up like a grapefruit. And there was like a wound on the front of the foot, like an open wound on the front of the foot, like almost like, I don't even know what, could do it. It almost looked like what the foot of an animal might look like that had been stuck in a trap or something. Um, but then also in between his toe pads was like an open wound inside there, like pussing and open almost down to the bone. Um, so something really messed up his foot because he was like gimping along real bad with it. And interestingly, I went back and looked at the last pictures I had of him in November. So I got a picture of him November 6th, and that was the first picture I had of him with that wound. So I think I had pictures of him on like the first or something or like late October and his foot looked fine. And then the November 6th, he had this foot wound 
And then I never saw him again till the day I killed him, December 3rd. So I, I don't know if him disappearing all of November was because of like the annual pattern thing that he did the year before, or if it was like, maybe he just, maybe he did that, but then was slowed down by this injury too. I don't know. Um, but to the date, daylight again, December 3rd, um, you know, and where I saw him was within a hundred yards of where I got a picture of him last year on December 3rd, that first time. So I don't know, you know, could be coincidence, but very, very interesting. Um, you know, that, that injury, you know, we, we always kind of think when we see a deer limping, it's like, Oh, you know, either he got shot or another buck speared him in the ass or something when they were fighting. But you know, you think about the environment they live in and, you know, I run bird dogs out and that stuff all the time. Like there's all kinds of, you know, like old barbed wire, you know, like a roll of old barbed wire on the ground or yeah. a fence post or just a stick getting like jammed in there wrong. Like a lot of times, you know, it's kind of like when people think like, oh, you know, you hunt where there's rattlesnakes. That's so dangerous. It's like not as dangerous as climbing in a tree. Like the, the less sexy stuff is a lot of times what gets you. Yeah. And I always wonder about that with them. Like they live out there long enough. They're going to get crazy injuries that aren't going to be like, you know, super cool that they got shot on the end of a drive or got into a fight with a way bigger buck. Like sometimes it's probably just stupid stuff. Like when we stub our toe, you know, like on the end table in the dark when you're going to bed or something. Right. Yeah. And you know, that that's a interesting point. Like, I don't know what this injury might've done. You know, if it went the long haul, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he, he was he was struggling like it was just his foot, but like it looked like he was really struggling to move. Um, and it was like definitely badly infected, like pussing and stuff. So who knows? Like maybe that's maybe he would have been fine and would have been around next year. Or maybe that infection would have spread or whatever. And that might have taken him out. He was definitely wore down. I don't know if that was yeah. just because of the rut or if that was because of this slowing him down, but he was definitely worn down body wise from what he looked like in pictures earlier in the year and stuff. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad it all came together. You know, it was, there was some, there was some luck there for sure. There were some decisions that worked out there for sure. There was um, something that all kind of brought these things together to make it work out. Um, but it was, it was pretty awesome. So, so can I ask you now that you're just killing deer with a gun and are you going to be more like Spencer here? Am I going to be the only real bow hunter left at meat eater? Or are we going to, are you going to get back to that? <laughs> hey man, two for three, two bow, one buck, <laughs> one of the gun. I, I, I got my percentages still in favor of the bow. <laughs> I but, say that as I'm looking at a gun, I'm going to take to hunt deer in like an hour. <laughs> so I'm just giving you shit. Uh, you know, I, uh. I, I love my bow hunting, but I, it is nice to get out with a gun every once in a while. And, uh, you know, it opens up possibilities like this fun. This, I like, I love bow hunting because of like the forced challenge and intimacy and everything like that. But there is something really cool about like the new challenge and possibilities. A gun hunt opens up. Like I like this kind of gun hunt. So it wasn't like I was shooting a deer like 300 yards. It was like, I still had to like stalk in on this deer and I killed him at, like 45, but I never, probably would have even considered trying to pull that off with a bow. Um, but I knew with like the gun and the conditions, like I might be able to sneak in, get there at 60 or 70 or something like that. And I mean, it was just, it was just fun. It was just really fun. And, um, dude, I, I have a whole foundations episode coming out, uh, 
at this week, I think on that very topic of like, it's great to be a purist and just be like, I'm, I'm only hunting with a bow or I only do this or that. But when you, when you are primarily a bow hunter or primarily whatever weapon choice you have and you switch it up, A, like you said, it's super fun, but B, you learn because you hunt differently. Yeah. Like you're not just going to default to what you know you have to do because of a specific weapon. And I think it makes you better. For sure. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I will appreciate this buck no less than any other buck I kill with a bow. That's for sure. So, um, so, so three big takeaways for me, Tony. I don't know if there's anything that you heard here in the story, but for me, like if I'm trying to spell out what led to this success, I think the things we've already touched on, but I just want to kind of put a bow on them here. One was, you know, being pretty darn uh, tactical as far as when I go in here and hunt, right? I took like a, a strike in early October. Um, I took a couple strikes in late October and then I left it alone pretty much entirely until December. Uh, the reason I did that with confidence is because I was leaning on this like annual pattern. I was going to, you know, take my trail camera data, take my observations in the past year and pair that with this historical trend that I was hoping would happen again and not, you know, add any more pressure to this place than I had to, because I know like a handful of hunts in the wrong days in the wrong ways, and I might never see them. So I was, you know, being careful and strategic with the timing. I was watching that annual pattern. And then the third thing I did that I think one, I think there's a downside to the increasing use of cell cameras now is that it can be really easy to become dependent on them because they are a great tool. They can give you, you know, much faster Intel out there than we used to have. Um, And so there is a tendency to wait for a picture before you go hunt a deer. So there might be like, well, you know, he's not there. Um, I'm not going to hunt unless I get like that daylight picture of him or whatever. And like, maybe that, that, that can be a good way probably to kill deer sometimes, but like camera, you can't depend on cameras. Like cameras only give you this tiny little window of what's going on out there. So even though cell cameras are a great tool, they only give you a glimpse at a very narrow sliver of what's going on in the woods. I mean, if you look at that as gospel truth of what's happening in the woods where you hunt, you are missing out on, you're missing the boat. Like you're missing on 99% of what's happening out there. Um, so yeah, they're great. Well, but they it, are, they're no, but not only that, but you're missing some of the deer that are walking by it. Right. Exactly. Like right by it. I mean, it, it's not only is it just giving you a little tiny slice of what's going on out there, which can be super valuable, but even in that slice, you know, it's not a hundred percent. Yep. Exactly. And so, I remember um, in a conversation with Mark Drury this year, he said something that stuck with me and that I was telling myself leading into this hunt. He said, yeah, cell cameras are great, but sometimes you've got to be the camera. You got to remember that you have to be the camera. We can't just always depend on these cameras. You've got to be it. And so that's what I kept telling myself leading into this December window. I remember thinking like, all right, I believe he's going to come back. Um, And I could either wait until he shows up in daylight in a camera and then use that as my trigger to go. Or I can choose when I think those best days are and try to predict when he'll first show up. And I decide, like, I got to be the camera. I'm going to make my own decision based on the conditions and what I know from the past. And I'm going to be there before he's there and kill him and not wait 
and wait and wait for him to show up on camera when maybe he's been all around it leading up to that. And I think that, you know, I, I had no daylight pictures of him for more than a month leading up to this. So if I had waited, I would have never known he was right there. Never would have had a shot. So I think that was another thing that, that helped this all come together. Um, and, you know, the history I had watching this deer the year prior, that all helped me know the right place to be. That all helped me kind of narrow down this, this little core area. I mean, like I said, less than 30 acres I was hunting here that he was in. And, like, this swamp is, like, less than 10 acres or something that I'm hunting around the edge of. So it's uh, it, it just kind of got tighter and tighter and tighter until I knew, like, okay, this is the spot. And I can hunt other places out here, but I'm just not probably not going to see him there. If, I, if I'm really going for him, it's, it's got to be, like, here, here, here. Um, and that slowly came together over the two years. So those, those are the things that stand out to me as far as, you know, what led to some success here. And I think that, you know, a lot of that can be applied to any small property, like the timing, the leaving it alone, unless it's just right, you know, looking at annual patterns to help you be smart about those hunts, being the camera. That's another thing. I think that also applies to the general late season, right? I waited till the late season because of that annual pattern, but also, you know, I let it be a sanctuary during gun season. So I think that's a great thing. If you have a small property with a lot of pressure around it, if you can kind of let your place be a sanctuary for a few weeks there when everybody else is out, you could have great late season hunting because of that. Um, I was hunting the edge of the best bedding next to the most attractive food that I had access to. That's a great late season tactic. Um, and I waited till like the right conditions, 20 degree cold front, high barometric pressure, all that kind of led to the night that, you know, deer would be on their feet a little bit earlier. So those are, those are the things that I think I take away from this. Um, I don't know. Is there any, anything else to you, Tony, or questions do you have or anything? No, I think it's just a good lesson on, you know, playing the, playing the long game on a small property in the right way. I mean, I, th- I think you did a good job, man. I think it's cool it, to just kind of like, really put the brakes on when you have to because I, I just don't I think it's so easy to not do that but it's so important when you're dealing with a small property and it, and when you're dealing with deer that are just generally in an area where they get hunted hard where there's a lot of hunting pressure like you just have to be so aware of what you're putting on them too yeah. I think this I think it's cool man yeah and I think one thing that should just be mentioned um and we we talk about this we've we've had this conversation in the past but you know, I, I've been pretty tactical and careful with how many times I hunt this piece, but that doesn't mean I haven't been able to hunt a lot still, right? I just go yep. other places. So I've hunted public land, different places. I've got two other, you know, I was, I was hunting a ton, hunted a ton, just all sorts of different spots, right? I wanted to hunt late November, so I went to Ohio. I wanted to hunt mid-November during gun season, so I went to northern Michigan. I wanted to hunt the core of the rut, so I went to this place and that place, Um you know, there's, there's plenty of ways to still have a great fun hunting season full of hunts without messing up, you know, a little piece of private, maybe that you do have access to that could, you know, be a window of opportunity like this. If you played it, you know, kind of short and sweet on what you do. So I don't want to make it sound like if you want to kill deer on small properties that you can never hunt them, that you can never hunt. Um, you can hunt just got to be strategic about when you make those strikes. If you're trying to kill like an old deer like that, and then just spread your hunt out over other places, go have some fun on public land, go, go do some crazy stuff in other places, get new permission. Um, this certainly doesn't need to limit your experience. Op- options are your friend. Yeah, that is the truth. That is the truth. So 
That's my story, man. It was a fun one. I love it, buddy. Well, Tony, I appreciate you uh, appreciate you coming on here to to hear me out and ask the good questions and help me talk through this one. Yeah, what's man. uh what's this uh muzzle loader story with you? You gonna you gonna get one down here soon? I don't maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if I can get out there. I actually I'm kind of just doing the muzzle loader thing because I enjoy it and I haven't picked up a gun in like eight years to hunt deer. And so I'm just having fun with it. But I'm I'm kind of, you know, you talk about a a 30 acre property that might have some late season potential. Uh, one of the properties I own over in Wisconsin, I'm, I'm picking up some bucks in a, in a little corner of that property that made it through the Wisconsin gun season. And there it's basically a pretty nice eight pointer for there. He's probably like a hundred, 105 inch deer. And then there's a spike, but for there, they're pretty good. And my daughter has a buck tag left. And so I'm kind of like, I'm going to get through this muzzleloader season here, which by the time this drops will be over. And then I'm going to go start working on those deer for her because I, I think the seasons over there is open through part of January. So there's a chance to maybe try to get on these deer and, uh, you know, do some kind of over Christmas break type of hunt and get her a chance at a buck when it should, you know, theoretically, it'll be really tough. You know, you know how it is after a gun season blows through there and it's late season and all that stuff. But still, I'm. I'm as excited for that as I kind of have been for anything this season. I think it's going to be at least really fun to try. Nice. Well, that's uh, man, just having like that hope for something fun in the late season is like basically all I ever asked for for the late season is like just something yeah. to get me excited and still be out there. That's that's a pretty good thing to have. Oh, dude, it's it's everything, and you know, I show because I have I have a cell camera over there, and I show my little girls those pictures, and of course, you know, she wants to shoot that that bigger buck, but. <laughs> I like in my head, there's a spike that moved in there that he might score 10 to 12 inches. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, that deer has no idea. He's, he's going to be the one who's probably going to be in trouble. Cause I think he just moved in there and he's living there and you know, we don't have any standards. I mean, if it's a legal buck, she's going to shoot it. So I'm like, I want to work on that bigger one, but I'm like that backup buck is probably in real trouble. He's, he's going to get it. <laughs> I, I hope, I hope so. I would love to see either, either one of them come in and have her have a cool hunt in the snow. You know, that would be so cool. Well, I'm going to wish my wish you luck and cross my fingers and toes for you guys. Awesome. Thanks buddy. All right. Thanks Tony. Yep. All right. And that's going to do it for us today. Thank you for listening. Appreciate you following along with this story. Uh, it was a fun one to share. I uh, I certainly am thankful it all came together like this and uh, just looking forward to more fun hunts in the future, getting to know these deer. I just absolutely love studying them, trying to figure out what they do, getting to know them, watching them grow over the years. Uh, it's it's super fun for a whitetail nerd like me and hopefully for, for those of you out there as, as well. So with all that said, let's wrap this up. Thank you. Good luck out there if you're still hunting. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam 
can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. 